You're listening to Healthy Discussions, a podcast supported by the Healthcare Leadership Academy, where we have conversations exploring big ideas in healthcare with our guests. I'm Zach Hassan, a junior doctor from Scotland. If you're interested in how we can make the health system better, then this is the podcast for you. Recently, I spoke to Dr. Claire Fernandez, who's the BBC's Chief Medical Officer for HLA Live, which is the Healthcare Leadership Academy's weekly webinar. Now, it made sense to reuse our conversation as a podcast on here for the HLA Listen channel. So I hope you enjoy. On this episode of HLA Live, we're focusing on some of the more novel and exciting places that a medical degree can take you and your career. And who better to talk to to us about that than the BBC's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Claire Fernandez. Welcome, Claire. Thanks, Zach. I'm really interested to know about what it's like being the BBC's Chief Medical Officer. What does your day-to-day work involve? Can you give us a flavour of that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, so this is a non-clinical role and I use my medical knowledge to shape policy and process. So um, a very obvious example at the moment is COVID. So I sit on a team that lead our COVID strategy, um, um, lead our kind of outbreak management and is the point of liaison with other organisations such as Public Health England um, and other broadcasting companies and their CMOs um, to have a quite joined up approach to novel things like productions and EastEnders and Strictly and how we go about filming during these difficult times but also how we keep all our other employees safe who might be stationed abroad or um, working in war zones, or working in the office. But then the other things that I would do outside of COVID would be things um, like shaping a mental health policy, a menopause policy, looking at areas in which we have groups of workers with um, particular health problems, or sickness absence, and working with HR and the teams to create a productive workforce, a happy and healthy workforce. So there's a whole variety of issues that you're working on, basically responsible for, you know, all aspects of, you know, em- employees working lives at, at the BBC. I'm interested to know about how you go about actually doing something about those issues. You know, are you in a lot of meetings? Um, you know, what kind of, you know, are you looking at data? You, give, is there, uh, just give us a little bit of uh kind of what you might spend each day doing yeah so there is a lot of meetings (laughs) compared to so I also do a clinical role one day a week Mm -hmm. because you know I feel that that's really important to me too and the big thing between you know when I'm in practice and, and when I'm at the BBC is the volume of meetings so when I first started I did honestly think how does anybody get anything done because you go from meeting to meeting and where does the work get done Um, So there's a lot of meeting with different um, key stakeholders, so HR, um, with our international teams, um, with our workplace, so our kind of engineers that work on ventilation, with our unions, 
um, and with different um, different other teams, depending on what exactly I'm doing. So lots of meetings, um, lots of um, liaison with um, employees um, and their representatives um, as a as a day to day. I see. So what's your what's your favourite bit of what you're working on? Do you know lots of these different issues? Does do any of them jump out as particularly exciting for you? Um, I don't know if exciting is the right word, but I do. Um, so at the moment, I've been doing lots of health promotion. So over COVID, um, there's been a need. So we, I, I cover twenty two thousand employees across the globe, and um, you know those employees range from the LA to um, Afghanistan to India, for example. So there's a whole lot of different health literacy within some of those populations, because not only does the populace include um, broadcasters and journalists, but also involves security guards and cleaners, um, of which, of course, even within the UK, there might be a wide variety of, of knowledge about COVID and health in general. So what I truly like, I do actually think it's exciting, but everyone's idea of exciting is a bit different, is I really like when I get to speak to, so for example, um, my workers in Kazakhstan or Afghanistan or Nepal with an interpreter talking about what COVID is, uh, talking about the things that sometimes we take for granted in terms of like hand space and space, um, and, you know, the simple strategies to help with health promotion. So what to do if you're ill, what to do if someone at home is ill and things like self-isolation. And those simple things that I think are just so incredibly important. That's probably my favourite thing. The other thing I quite like doing, which is very, very novel to my kind of role, is um, working with productions. So mm. it's something I've never done before. It's something that people see as being quite glamorous. It's not particularly glamorous, but it is a real stretch of my mind and how we use our medical knowledge. So, for example, Top Gear, I worked with the safety team to look at how we keep them at two metres when they're doing their crazy stuff. So I think there was one time um, they had an ice cream truck and they're going across England in the truck and they had to monitor <laughs> the vehicle to make it COVID secure. Mm. So we looked at, okay, how do we practically do that? Or working on Strictly, working with the lighting designers. Um, so they use haze, which I didn't know is a way of creating depth really in a studio. So making it look bigger than it is, making the dancers look... Um, different and creating that illusion and they came to me and said well can we use haze and to my response I don't know what haze is so you know a lot of a lot of work goes into that and looking at okay well it's an oil-based solution and this is what they use it for and this is how it works in the air and just kind of extrapolating what I know about COVID to what I'm learning about these techniques to help them continue in their work and be safe that's pretty cool I like that so what you've given us a flavor of kind of what kind of situations people are coming to you with is it usually sort of completely fresh stuff that you know maybe nobody's asked that question before and you've got to be the person that kind of you know starts from first principles of what should we do about this um 
no, not really. So whilst those are the exciting bits, there is a lot of the day-to-day. I think we have that in all our medical careers. We have, there's a few bits and pieces that are really novel, but if everything was novel, perhaps we wouldn't be able to cope. Um, There is a lot of day-to-day things in terms of queries around um, working practice or having to um, deal with... um, employees that have queries about how we're doing things you know at the moment we're doing um some health promotion within within the nations about what the new variant might mean for our working practices and also kind of planning of productions going forward or planning of news stories going forward but also planning of offices going forward so there's a lot lot of kind of day-to-day stuff which um is very very routine as as with everybody's job but it's still just as important but perhaps just not as exciting you know i i think if i you know if i was even getting to uh ask get asked some questions by the top gear team i think that would uh balance out you know the routine stuff for for myself anyway so um i'm interested to know as as because you're kind of in a leadership position at the bbc and i wonder you uh, you know how much scope do you have for improving people's health more sort of generally? You've maybe suggested that you've got an international reach in terms of that health promotion stuff. But I wonder what other kinds of issues that you're trying to address and how you're kind of approaching the organisational improvement side of things. Yeah, absolutely. So at the moment, COVID is all encompassing. But I think, you know, the thing about COVID is it really does... um, identify health inequity and that's within any group of people regardless of whether they're abroad or in the UK Um, and that's something that's really really important to me Um, so how we go about doing that I think so the vaccination scheme is probably a good a good example of how we're going about that at the or how I'm doing that at the moment for Covid which is um again looking at our different groups of people and answering questions and helping them uh, to make a decision for themselves but specifically uh, without discrimination or targeting but acknowledging um, that certain groups are more at risk so we've got lots of employee groups within the BBC such as um, Ability or Embrace that that have you know kind of an ethnic minority component or mm-hmm. or and and going to them and saying okay um can we do can we do more for you right now uh, to, to acknowledge that there is a difference between communities um and also going to our some of our other third party staff such as our our cleaners and our security guards that may have a different makeup and may be more at risk and saying do you want this information as well to try and empower? Because I think that's really powerful um, when you're in an organisation to do so. But I think you know, outside of COVID, the way that the way that I will go about that is using some of the data um, on sickness absence, um, using some of the data that we have on pockets of problems within our workforce, and just in terms of things like work-related stress or or general things like do we have a problem with um, people going off sick with cardiovascular problems here, there, and then targeting Mm -hmm. some of our resources. So one of the things as an employer that I'm quite privileged to be a part of is we've got a GP service, a a private GP service. We've got health kiosks that 
um, do blood pressure and do kind of know your numbers type scenarios and you know how do we use those better how do we take that data and and inform our staff so that they're empowered to make their own choices and live healthier all the way down to the food that we serve in the canteen we have a kind of healthy eating policy we have those sorts of things um, we have kind of fitness goals for our staff that we then want to empower them to to embrace really are, are you getting to write some of those policies you know i i'm i'm getting the sense that you know you're in a position where you really can change things if you if you want to whereas I think, uh, especially as a junior doctor, but you know, doctors at all stages in the NHS, trying to change things for the better can be extremely difficult sometimes, even if you've got a really good idea. Yes. Do you think you're in, you're in a position you can make things happen? I think I'm in an, in, an incredibly privileged position to help make things happen, but I definitely emphasise help because it's not just me. So I work with safety, I work with HR, I work with the executives, um, I work with employee groups. And so I listen to the concerns from every side to help make those changes. But I think I'm in an incredibly privileged position where I'm the only, do I'm the only paid doctor within this company to give medical advice. And so therefore, um, I'm in a, a, a very lovely position where if I say something, um, people will take it on board and understand that importance. Whether they go ahead is sometimes the difference between a clinical decision and a business decision. Their priorities mm -hmm. can be slightly different. But I am there to you know, stick my oar in and say, hang on a second, this is what I think is the good thing to do and this is where it benefits I think it benefits our employees I'm really there you know as a kind of employee slash patient advocate you you mentioned a little bit about uh, mental health and um, sort of workplace related stress and you know I'm interested in this you know especially at somewhere like the BBC because you know you, we, we've heard in the news about you know mental stress of being a celebrity you know, is, is, is quite a lot. I'm just wondering, you know, if you, without going into any specifics, what, how do you, how are you thinking about what an organisation like the BBC might be able to do about those kinds of problems and just organisations more generally? Yeah, absolutely. So it's always a difficult one. Um, now, things, things that, um, we do within the BBC. So I think the BBC is like any organisation. So we know that occupationally, mental health is the biggest challenge for employees and employers. And second to that is musculoskeletal disease. Um, and the HSC, the Health, uh, Health and Safety Executive, keeps statistics on that. And so it's always a challenge for employers and employees, um, which can lead to a real burden of ill health. So I think that within every organisation, it's important to have a policy or, you know, a statement of commitment, but also a strategy to meet that. Um, and partly that comes from looking at stresses within a workplace, but also stresses within daily life, because 
work and home, as, as doctors we all know this, work and home, the lines can become blurred if you're working all the time. And it's same for our employees too. There are some obvious stresses as well that perhaps would be more unique to broadcasting because we deploy people to war zones. Mm -hmm. Like, pretty stressful. You don't need to be a doctor to know that that's going to be pretty stressful. Um, but also, if you think about employees, and, and you know, this, this relates to doctors also, um, you know, some groups of employees we know have um, perfection, perfectionistic characteristics that are more likely to to lead to certain mental health conditions you know you know there's different groups of people that have different risks and perhaps being a celebrity is is one of those so it's important for us to look at all our workforce because it includes the celebrities as well as joe blogs like me that in, in, in on a desk bum on a seat but also then people um that contribute to our shows so we've got to think about things like children in need and how that might affect the people mm -hmm. that take part but also um, our radio stations and people that take part in in shows about their experiences. How does it how does it affect them? So it's kind of a very broad reaching scope of mental health mm -hmm. that we look at. I'm very interested to know a little bit more about how you might support those journalists who are going into war zones. I mean, um, how involved are you with with those kinds of uh, you know people, and what kind of things uh, are you offering in terms of support? Yes, so we're incredibly lucky to have a trauma specialist um, and a team that deals specifically with trauma. So some of them are, um, you know, have trauma experience from from being deployed or their previous work experience and some of them are news gatherers so we've got a very experienced multidisciplinary type team um, and they have a very comprehensive system of um, pre-deployment post-deployment during deployment type plan and we also have external support from a very experienced psychiatrist and, and his team who deals specifically with um, trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder um, and we have a pathway um, that puts people through that as needed so it's a very kind of um, a multidisciplinary with a pathway with external um, specialist support so my input is quite limited um, mainly because uh, my specialty is occupational medicine um, so I'm not necessarily best placed to do anything specific other than take a higher level view. So, for example, if we did have a major problem and we could see that from a kind of high level view, we're obviously not doing something right. And then I would work with the team to change that, but would very much be a light touch on that because of they're better placed mm -hmm. and they're you know more specialists to do so. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's such a range of, uh, you know, differences to working in a traditional NHS job, but also like a lot of similarities as well. Um, another similarity is that it's been dominated by COVID uh, recently. And I, I I wonder, you know, things are starting to open up now, especially in, in England. Are, are you seeing that kind of work start to come to an end? Is it starting to round off or is it just as much as it's ever been? Yeah, um, so it's different from the beginning because the beginning everything was new and, we, you know, I was working a lot on on 
speculation and hypothesis. So there's quite a lot of work around, well, how do we make best judgments? Um, and then, you know, individual lockdowns happen. And because we have so many regional offices, um, again, it was sort of working to have a plan um, on well, how do we work. So, for example, can we um, have journalists going to hospital? What work is necessary? So is it, can we then use contributors with who are clinically extremely vulnerable or clinically vulnerable? Those sorts of decisions on a, on a national level and a local level. But then also abroad. So India at the moment um, has kept me very busy um, in terms of well, how do we best support our teams out there? And again, different places around the world can do that also. So it's kind of been quite a steady stream of work. It's um, uh, It's been rather never-ending, if you like. Mm. But of course, it's been very different, different, different to um, our colleagues, like such as yourself in the hospital. And I, I never want to put put my workload in, in the same bracket as yours because actually you guys have been non-stop throughout in, in various, very mm. serious situations. Um, whereas for me, some of it's pattern recognition and, and how can we make processes to make things um, different for different people? How do we look at how lockdown works? How do we look at withdrawing um, our NPIs abroad where there's no guidance? How do we look at staying consistent across our countries? So there's a lot of planning involved and then implementation that, that hasn't ended. Mm -hmm. Something that I, I wanted to ask about. So you, at, at some point you had to make the decision, you know, am I going to continue in hospital medicine or am I going to leave and do something else? And this is a, a dilemma that I think faces many people who are working in the NHS at the moment. Maybe they'd like to, you know, have a bit more of a broader role or or remit and, you know, while keeping some of the clinical stuff as well. Do, do you remember that as something that was a dilemma for you? And, you know, I, I just wonder if you can tell us how, how you think about that now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... I really resonate with what you just said. So I, my career has been very long-winded to the point that in my last post, my boss, who was amazing, said to me, do you actually want to be a doctor? To which I said, I do. I just don't know what flavour of doctor I want to be yet. So I went through, you know, a kind of very traditional route, um, a-levels, med school, F1, F2, um, thought I wanted to be um, an interventional radiologist from about F1, started radiology training straight after F2, and um, really didn't like it. Um, and I was very much an odd duck because I... I had four wonderful STs that worked with me, three STs that worked with me, and they all really liked it. Um, all my consultant colleagues and registrars loved their job, and I thought, hang on a second, I'm different. Um, I stuck with it for a bit. I loved the intervention. Um, I really liked working with my hands. The other bits, it just didn't fulfill me. Um, that must have been quite hard. It was really hard. So I um, 
I stayed till ST2 and I I spent a lot of time talking to um, my partner and my parents about what, what I should do. My parents advised me to stick with radiology and my partner said, who's, who's not a medic, said, I think you should leave because it was making me quite unhappy. Um, mm. So when I handed in my notice, I called HR and said, how do I, you know, how do I go about doing this? And they said, well, we don't know. Nobody's done it before. <laughs> so, yeah. So that wasn't, so, that wasn't encouraging. It, I, I felt like I, it was a huge decision for me, but it was a life-changing decision for me. Um, I felt that mm. I was very much on my own. I did have very good support from um, the kind of, careers unit but I did feel very much like I was on my own and that I was taking a path that no one had taken before because I'm a drama queen because obviously people have taken these paths before and I wasn't on my own (laughs) but I felt like I was going against the grain and I was doing something Mm -hmm. that maybe I would regret but when I did that um, I then uh, decided to kind of take a year out and went with my best friend to New Zealand and we uh, we worked as SHOs and um, I then went and did a bit of travelling. And that was really fun because I really realised what I wanted from my life. I didn't work out what specialty I wanted to do, which was mm-hmm. a little bit of the point. I'd chosen some specialties that I thought I might like. Um, but what I did realise is that I definitely didn't want to do radiology, which was a huge weight off my shoulders but also that I wanted something I'd still had that spark for medicine and I wanted something that kept that spark going so I still didn't know what I wanted to do when I came back but I thought well let's do something very broad based Mm -hmm. so I can do something after that and therefore chose general practice um really didn't like general practice I found it incredibly difficult and incredibly uh work heavy very intense I loved the hospital bits I really didn't like Mm. the general practice bits except the patients um, and my colleagues and so I knew I wanted to do something with patients and that's what radiology hadn't given me so I then I just fell into occupational medicine Mm. it was a complete fluke but each each way along the way I realized something more about myself and what I wanted and you know that we talked about that need to make change that sometimes in the NHS you don't feel that you can do for red tape or because you might feel like a just a cog in a wheel or because you're moving moving hospitals so much and so you never can complete something or you know for whatever reason I felt that I really needed something like that um and fell into occupational medicine and it it ticked some of the boxes not all of them it doesn't it doesn't sometimes feel, fulfill my need for adrenaline but i get that i get those kicks in my own time by running or you know bungee jumping or whatever that those bits i get in my own time but it fulfills enough of it fulfilled enough of what i wanted to do to be able to move forward with that it's it's great to it's really inspiring to hear you you say that as somebody who's you know now maybe getting to fulfill a bit more of those things that they wanted in their NHS job. This idea that you said about going against the grain, I, I think this this is what puts the fear in people. People 
are afraid to step out of those traditional pathways because you know well what are people going to say and you know what about my my training i mean you've clearly managed to push through that fear what would you say to people that are maybe thinking they might want to step outside medicine but they are afraid to do it is there anything so, that that you'd advise yeah, them absolutely so if i had to do it again i would do it again i'd still be equally scared i mean it's scary being outside of traditional medicine. It was scary taking on this role um, because it still is different. You have to, you know, you have to make your own networks, and and sometimes there isn't a pathway to follow. But there's several things I would I would do that weren't necessarily available when I when I started that journey. Is firstly, I'd find others like you because there are lots of people like you. So um, Medic Footprints um, is a community of um, doctors that are forging their own paths, be it working in um, a, an unusual clinical specialty or being an entrepreneur alongside clinical practice or all sorts of things. Or, you know, there's somebody that's a yoga instructor and gave up medicine to be a yoga instructor. So Medic Footprints, I think, is a really good um, community and the second is alternative careers for medicine, which again can be, they both can be found on Google or Facebook. And again, is set up by um, a, a chap who um, left uh, general practice to um, um, do allied to medicine type specialties. I think he's, he's set up some digital med medical stuff. Um, and again, those, they're filled with people who, want to do something different and they're really inspiring but I think also the second thing is um uh don't be too hard on yourself um it's okay to feel that you want more um I think it's important to consider what it is you want so something like my job it seems super cool um, and people are very impressed when I say what my title is but it's hard work. It's sometimes <laughs> long hours. It's sometimes banging my head against a wall. Um, like anything else in medicine, it requires dedication and vocation. Mm -hmm. And so any alternative career that you want to go into, think about why. So, for example, everybody wants to be an investment banker, don't they? Everyone wants to roll around in money and, you know, drive a gold Bentley. But actually, is it going to fulfill you? <laughs> <laughs> those sorts of things you know just mm -hmm. being facetious to, to to make the point think about what it is that you then want mm -hmm. from your career um and but also then think about if there are people that have done it before they're probably okay with being contacted or look at what they've done or look at the qualities that you need to have that job and then start working on how you go about doing that but don't forget it's important then to have have a safety net as well and be realistic about what can be achieved so there's you know still long hours but uh you know are there any are there any sort of perks on the other side that make you know working hard a little bit you know easier for you I just wonder in terms of the uh you know those kinds of work uh benefits uh working at the bbc uh not that we're advertising for the bbc <laughs> or anything but uh be interested to know a little bit about what the lifestyle's like Oh my God, the lifestyle. Um, so I started working for the BBC 
um, as the first lockdown hit. So I don't think I've quite benefited from any potential lifestyle so far, but I think <laughs> are several. So if we think about the kind of personal satisfaction first, um, I find the work very rewarding because whilst I'm not dealing with individual patients, which gives also gives me a lot of joy, I do get to make change. Um, and sometimes it is on an, mm-hmm. an individual level where I can see that change. But quite often it's on a work, it's on, on a big level, um, which I think is incredibly mm-hmm. satisfying. Um, my mind, you know, my brain hurts on a daily basis because my mind is stretched. So on a professional level, I love the fact that I do have to do a lot of reading about lots of different things. I have to learn lots about how mm-hmm. the organisation works in order to be able to to influence um, in a way that's appropriate. Um, but I find that very enjoyable and very stimulating. From a kind of production point of view, uh, yeah, I get to I work with some amazing people. Um, you know, I I, I have my bosses, the senior people there, the executive team, the director general are all incredibly inspiring um, people. They're all incredibly successful and they're mm-hmm. all incredibly lovely, which is really nice. But then the obvious perks, so yes, I've been to EastEnders. I, you know, I've, I've spoken to famous members of staff. I might, I'm not the best when it comes to celebrities, so I don't sometimes know who they are, but other people do. And I have, you know, nice stories to tell. <laughs> um, yes, I have been invited to go to Strictly. Yes, I am going to go down to Top Gear. There's some cool things that I get to do and I get to see that other people um, wouldn't, which is a wonderful privilege. I, I want to turn um, now to maybe talking about what uh, what the BBC gets out of having somebody like a chief medical officer, um, you know, because you bring a lot of expertise, certain medical background, certain way of doing things. How does an organisation like the BBC benefit from having a, you know, a doctor in chief? So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to speak on their, their behalf because obviously I'm amazing and they love me. But, <laughs> but I think that... <laughs> What what in gen in general what what they would get is um, firstly they get they get somebody that is that can be purely um, an employee advocate. So I look purely at health or purely at, at, at conditions to help them make a decision. So um, when they are deciding on you know is our COVID strategy adequate, I'm not looking at cost. I'm not looking at practicality. I'm looking at best evidence, and that's all I'm doing. So they, they then can make a decision based on um, those other things that are important to them. Um, when I'm looking at policy, I'm looking at nice guidelines. I'm looking at the, you know, I'm looking at best practice clinically to help them decide on how policy is shaped, which no one else is doing. Um, I have a, a network of other other doctors to help benchmark what's happening in other organisations to help shape. Mm-hmm. But also, I think that they get any organisation would benefit from somebody with that robust integrity that comes from being a doctor, that ability to think quickly 
and, and about safety and best practice and um, assurance to ensure that processes are safe. So even if mm -hmm. they're not working in a, in a completely medical role, there's lots of the transferable skills that they also get from having a chief medical officer. So that ability to um, stand up to scrutiny, to be honest, to be robust, um, and to mm -hmm. be confident in situations that can be shaky, they also get that as well as somebody that um, is a you know is not bowed by how important someone is that is simply looking at what best practices mm -hmm. or what is best for an individual or group that's not that you know that's not curtailed by people um who might be upset or angry because we're used to dealing with somebody that like that or that's not afraid mm -hmm. to communicate openly and honestly in the face of you know important people they get all all sorts of clinical skills in a non-clinical environment but also personal mm. skills that I think us as doctors um show you know have in spades it, it reminds me of a quote actually um in in the land of the blind the one-eyed man is is king and I wonder as the only doctor if it sort of feels like that sometimes you know you've got maybe more understanding of what the evidence is saying and, and more ability to put the, the individual at the heart of things. I, I'm interested to know about where you're, um, what kind of information uh, you have available to you to sort of inform those decisions. You know, are you having to find all of that yourself or do you have a team of people around you? I'd, I'd be interested to know. So, yes, I'm definitely, um, I'm definitely the, the, the pinnacle of the, the one-eyed man is king um, with the medical knowledge. But what I would say is that I work with incredibly intelligent people who are at the forefront of the comms industry, so the news. Mm. Um, and so therefore, they also do know quite a lot. Or, I think, which is in general in in in, in society at the moment is, is that a little bit of information can be a good or a bad thing. Um, so sometimes my role is helping them to interpret that information in a way that's correct or framing that in a way that's actually how I think it is. Um, but in terms of, of how I do that or what I have support I have around me, so I have an amazing um, allied team of safety professionals um, who help to um, take some of the things that I write or say and put it in a context that's appropriate for that particular workplace. So, you know, somebody filming in um, Northern Scotland versus somebody that's working um, on a Top Gear shoot in rainy South England might be quite different. Um, <laughs> I also have kind of, I have a team of, of health professionals so I have an occupational psychologist who works more on the mental health side of things um, and, and and another um, specialist who helps to implement some policy and practice so it's more than just me but also then I think the BBC and the people I work with in HR or in editorial policy or in in resilience they're very good at then taking what I've said in the context of 
the way they need to apply it to their situation. So it's very much always a joint effort. Mm-hmm. So, so let's say there's something that you want to change and, you know, you've got the, the evidence sort of saying that, you know, this would be a good idea and you know that you, you want to do that. Uh, there's a sort of decision that kind of, you know, it sounds like, you know, you have to persuade other people around you and to do that, you have to use your influence. So I want to ask you about influence on a sort of organizational scale, but then maybe also influence on an individual scale as well you know, how do you go about trying to influence these things around you? So, yeah, that, uh, and that's something really, Zach, that I'm still learning to an extent because every day is a school day. Um, so I think, you know, it, it, you're right. It's um, influencing, it's negotiating, um, it's persuasion. And I think no matter what job you're doing, um you know, even if it's a patient in front of you and you're trying to convince them um, to take a certain me- medication or you're trying to um, give them information about an operation they really need or, you know, a DNAR decision, it's the same sort of thing. So I think, first of all, as being, you know, being real and being a human being and being being honest, open, upfront and having that proven background is something that takes time. People trust you more when they know that, you, they feel they know what you're doing. Of course, it's only natural. It's not personal. It's I do it too. So having that kind of track record of you know keeping your head down and and and, and doing everything and and you know being like it sounds silly, but being seen to be doing those things also is always something. But I think then building those mm-hmm. personal relationships. So it's kind of key to everything isn't it really um understanding what somebody's somebody's about understanding where they're coming from understanding what their motivation is um has got to be the way that we then work together because unless something is vastly unsafe it's not a do as i say because i'm the doctor that's not cool it's not appropriate either so it is a case of well what is what is it that I want to achieve what is it that they want to achieve and you know which which are the bits that for me are a must-have so sometimes when I'm I'm putting something in place for COVID for example I'll have a, a, a list of nice to have and a list of must-haves so for example temperature screening nice to have not necessary excellent ventilation must have non-negotiable so those sorts of things so kind of you know having that give and take but I think that you know Mm. it's ongoing relationship both on a on a um, individual level and on an organizational scale it's knowing who those players are it's knowing who um who makes the decisions and what makes them tick just like people that influence me and I don't really know about it they're doing the same thing they're finding out who I am, what makes me tick. It's quite refreshing to to have somebody say, well, it's not about this idea that you've just got to, you've got to know the most or be the most confident or push things through. It's about speaking to people. It's about actually having those good quality relationships. I want to come back to something you said, because you you felt like this was a job where you really could make things happen on on a wider level. And I, I feel like I, I want to know exactly why you feel like that. You know, what is it about this job that makes you feel like you can change things? 
So I think they're very receptive is the first thing, is when you have an organisation that's receptive to change or receptive to improvement, that's the most amazing blank canvas. I think COVID helps. People have realised, not you know, not necessarily within the BBC, but in general, I think people realise how important health is and how precious health is. And But people realise that sometimes it's about the basics, you know, washing your hands, very basic thing. I think what is mortality rate across the world for under fives is mainly for infectious diseases, you know, these simple things that are still important. So I think that's the first thing is I, I work in an organisation that is very receptive to those ideas, which is so amazing and inspirational. Mm-hmm. But I think the other thing is, and, and this is really what makes me tick, is um, we have a, a very big international arm in which um, I think there is quite a lot of room for understanding what their health systems are like, what they're like, how they live, how they work to be able to improve things for people, which I've seen through COVID and some of the talks I've done on vaccination, for example, that filters into the community, which has actually happened in the UK as well as abroad, which I think you then think, wow, okay. They might not not take up a vaccination, but they've listened to the information and they've fed back that they found it useful. And to me, that's that's everything. Mm. It's these small grassroots things that make a big behemoth organization move has got to be top down and bottom up to you know to stratify it and I think that I'm in a position where I'm so lucky to be able to do both and have a motivated uh, set of employees and their bosses that are really receptive to change which is really cool so so you're not regretting your decision to to leave that radiology job? I tell you what, I tell you what, whilst I don't regret it, I do think it would have been cool. <laughs> if, you know, I'd have loved to. <laughs> I would have loved to have stuck with it. You know, some of the people that I, I, I worked with um, are doing these super cool, like new techniques and life-changing procedures. That is awesome you know there is one part of me still that would be like yeah I'd love to be that pioneering person uh you know uh, somebody said to me when I started radiology oh I bet they'll name a sign after you that would have been very cool I would still like to have a sign <laughs> named after me <laughs> so I don't regret it um but I'm only human, so I think, you know, there's there's always going to be a part of me that says, well, what would that life have been? Why, you know, why not? But for certainly I wouldn't change this life for anything. All the pathway, all, all you know, all the tears and the heartache and the difficult decisions. Mm. Um, it's all of those little things have brought me to, to where I am. And I think people that have are having those doubts or those kind of, twinges of what do I do should take heart that anything that they do or they've done so far will ultimately shape where they go and what they do going forward so so one question that I always end on is uh you know whether if people want to uh, know a little bit more about what we've been talking about is there a book that you would recommend that's maybe influenced you 
Oh God. So that's a really interesting question. <laughs> There's not a lot that makes me speechless, but this is one of them. A book. No. So I tell you why. Because I take quite a lot of inspiration. I read quite a lot, but, you know, not kind of, you know, how to influence and negotiate or, you know, mm. techniques of successful people. I haven't got to that stage where I read those. I tend to read more about, at the moment, I'm reading about Greek mythology and and, and history. So I, I don't really have those sorts of things. I don't really watch a lot of podcasts or mm. TED Talks. I take a lot of inspiration from the people around me. So that's, I think, for me, whilst there's, I'm really sorry, there's no kind of high-flying book or nugget, my nugget would be... No, that's, that's okay. Just, yeah. My nugget would be take inspiration from those around you. Learn from those that are willing to give you a hand. I still am in touch with the, the consultant radiologist from FY1 who, um, um, you know, was a sounding post, was a real guiding light and a really cool dude, just a really nice person. I'm still in touch with him um, and mm. I'm constantly, I can't give anything back, but, I, you know, he helped me so much. So take the help that, that is offered to you because that, that's gold dust. And then when you get to a stage where you feel, yeah, I'm cool, I've reached where I want to be, don't forget to pass it back to and help other people up. I think that's a, a great note to finish on. It's It's been an absolutely amazing conversation, Claire. Lots of uh, really positive stuff about sort of knowing yourself and uh, not being afraid to sort of uh, take the jump. So thank you very much for talking to me. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's been awesome, Zach. Thank you. If you like the podcast, the best way to support it at this stage is to tell your friends about it and share it on social media. You can use the hashtag healthy discussions or my Twitter handle at Monterey Zach to tell me your thoughts about this episode. In the description, you'll find more about our guests' work and their book recommendations. Thanks to Health Education England North East, Health Education England South West and Medics Academy for supporting this episode. All of us at the Healthcare Leadership Academy are grateful for their support.